You're listening to Comedy Central. September 19, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Tonight, uh, Eli Saslow and Derek Black, they're here to discuss uh, an amazing story about Derek's transformation as a former white nationalist who now fights for racial equality. Talk about a plot twist. But first, (laughs) let's catch up on today's headlines. Bert and Ernie are beloved Sesame Street characters, but the question on everyone's mind this week was if that segment was brought to you by the letters LGBTQ. We are back now with Bert and Ernie and the burning question this morning, are they best friends or something more? The question was raised publicly by a recent interview with former Sesame Street writer Mark Saltzman. Were you thinking of Bert and Ernie as a gay couple? Saltzman, who joined the show in 1984, responded in part, I always felt that without a huge agenda, when I was writing Bert and Ernie, they were. Saltzman's recollection set it off on social media and brought responses from Sesame Workshop, declaring in part that Bert and Ernie, quote, remain puppets and do not have a sexual orientation. Wait, Muppets don't have a sexual orientation? Uh, That's weird because I know for a fact that Kermit and Miss Piggy smash hard. That's what I, I know. I know this. They... They even did an episode when the Count counted all their sex positions. He was like, <laughs> one, reverse cowgirl, two, Sudanese jackhammer, ah, 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 ah. Now, I don't really know if Bert and Ernie are gay, because, I mean, on the one hand, two guys living together for 40 years could mean they're gay, but it could also just be that they live in New York and apartments are expensive. <laughs> and also, if they were gay, let's be honest, that eyebrow would have been addressed by now. <laughs> would have been dealt with. But let's move on. Let's move on, because a school superintendent in Texas did something racist. A Texas school superintendent's job may be on the line after he made a racist remark about Houston Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. On a Facebook post about the Texans, Onalaska ISD superintendent Lynn Redden wrote, quote, when you need precision decision-making, you can't count on a black quarterback. Well, parents whose kids attend the school district were quick to come out against Redden's comment. I think he needs to be checked out for that. That needs to be addressed. You think that comment's racist? Uh, it sure sounds like it to me. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm gonna be honest. I didn't expect that accent to say something woke. I'm not gonna lie. Like, I watched that clip thinking I was gonna see a story about a racist, and it turns out I'm the racist. <laughs> Because that was great, he's right. Like, now I'm imagining that there's an entire crew of Southern progressives just running around like, hey, boy, we don't take kindly to racists around here. This here's tolerance country, you heard? And by the way, congratulations to Bert and Ernie. Live your truth, boys. Yeah! It's amazing. Oh, in other news, in other news, Stormy Daniels has a new book out, and the details are... 
way too detailed. New excerpts from Stormy Daniels, her book was just released, and in it, she describes her intimate encounter with President Trump. And we'll give you the daytime TV version. She says the president's, you know what, looks quote like the mushroom character in Mario Kart. <laughs> and in case you're wondering, here is the character uh, named Toad. That's right, in her new book, Stormy Daniels says that Trump's penis looks like Toad. And first of all, gross. Uh, second of all, gross. Uh, third, this shouldn't be on the real news. I mean, we would cover it, but people shouldn't be up for Pulitzers for getting the Trump toad dick scoop. I don't think that should be on the news. And like, but like, I have so many questions now. Like, did, like does it include the shoes? <laughs> like, does Trump's dick have tiny little shoes? Does, like, it's got a vest? Does his penis have a vest? Because now I'm picturing like a penis wearing a vest and Trump's like, sometimes it gets chilly. You gotta keep it warm. I like, and also what I want to know is, when did Stormy Daniels discover Trump's dick looked like Toad? Were they having sex and she was like, oh damn, where's Mario and Luigi? <laughs> or was it years later when she was playing Mario Kart for the first time and she was driving and she was like, ah, oh, there it is! <laughs> Either way, I'm not gonna lie, I hate this story. I hate this story because now it's made me wonder if Trump has other Mario-related things about him. Like, now I just picture Trump getting frisky, like, now I'm gonna go down on you. na 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 all right, let's move on to our main story. Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court nominee and renowned dad jeans collector. His confirmation hearings were already controversial and contentious, but this weekend, they reached a whole new level. The Supreme Court nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh could be in jeopardy. A woman going public saying he sexually assaulted her when they were in high school. Christine Blasey Ford, a college professor in California, tells the Washington Post Kavanaugh and a friend were stumbling drunk at a party in the 1980s and allegedly forced her into a bedroom, pinned her to a bed and groped her. She says, he was trying to attack me and remove my clothing. She told the Post when she tried to scream, he put his hand over her mouth. Kavanaugh has categorically denied the accusation, saying in a statement, I did not do this back in high school or at any time. God damn. Just when you thought the Supreme Court hearing couldn't get any more dramatic, this drops. I mean, two weeks ago, it was protesters dressed like Handmaid's Tale, and now we're dealing with allegations that Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted a girl when he was 17. And what's also wild about this is like, this is like the fifth prominent person Donald Trump has supported who's been accused of mistreating women. You know, it's almost like he doesn't realize it, but if he likes someone, it's because they have a shady history with women. You know, it's like shame recognize shame. So like if Trump says, there's something I like about this guy, we should probably investigate them. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and now like Kavanaugh denies all of these allegations adamantly. He says he didn't sexually assault anyone. He says he doesn't remember that party. In fact, he says he was never even 17. He just went 15, 16, <laughs> 18, just to be safe, just to be safe. And now look, and now look, nobody at this point knows all the facts in this story. But because these allegations are so serious, Senate Republicans are saying they want to get to the bottom of this, as long as it doesn't take too long. Christine Blasey Ford, the woman accusing Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault, says the FBI should investigate her claims before she agrees to testify before the Senate. But Republicans are pushing for a Monday hearing. 
Chairman Grassley argued nothing the FBI or any other investigator does would have any bearing on what Dr. Ford tells the committee. So there is no reason for any further delay. Senate Republicans have a message for Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Testify Monday or they'll move on with a vote. Wow. So Dr. Ford wants the FBI to investigate this incident before she testifies. And Senate Republicans are insisting on Monday or nothing. Like how tone deaf is it? Then in the case of an alleged sexual assault, the woman is saying, I feel like you guys are moving too fast. And these dudes are like, well, we're ready, so we're doing this. <laughs> and now, to be honest, I understand why Senate Republicans are in a rush. Like, they want to get the Supreme Court seat filled before the midterms, which they're afraid that they may lose, right? It's the same way I made sure to pose with every celebrity at the Emmys before <laughs> I lost to John Oliver, because I knew no one wants to pose with a loser, but everyone likes you and you might win. <laughs> I made sure, I made sure. Now, what, what's interesting is some people aren't even waiting for the testimony though, right? They've already decided that there's something fishy about this woman's story. This was in the early 1980s, it's now 2018. She was 15 years old, she's now 51. There is ground for some suspicion there. He was appointed to a federal appeals court, or federal court. Where was she then when he was appointed to that court? Uh, I don't, I don't, Why I, now? Uh, Why? I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. She had repressed her memory, supposedly, till 2012, but it was when he was up for the Supreme Court that suddenly the stakes got higher. Yeah, that's a good point. Why are these allegations about his fitness for the Supreme Court only coming up now that he's going up for the Supreme Court? <laughs> Get the f out of here, man. <laughs> like, this is exactly the time you'd expect this stuff to come up. What's the whole point of hearing? Like, it it couldn't work any other way. Like, that would be the weirdest episode of Law and Order ever if the, 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 the lawyer came out like, Your Honor, why would the prosecution submit the murder weapon as evidence now? During the trial? The timing seems suspicious to me. I rest my case. <laughs> and now, I'll, I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I'm not shocked that people would question the motives of a woman who's come forward with these allegations. It's pretty, it's pretty much par for the course. What's been interesting, though, is that there are some people arguing that even if she is telling the truth, that shouldn't affect Kavanaugh's Supreme Court appointment because boys will be boys. These are sensitive issues. But high school behavior, mm -hmm. how much in society should any of us be held liable today when we've lived a good life, an upstanding life by all accounts, and then something that maybe is an arguable issue took place in high school. Should that deny us chances later in life, even for a Supreme Court job, a presidency of the United States, or you name it? Okay, well, first of all, we know it doesn't exclude you from the presidency. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that pussy-grabbing ship has sailed. But, <laughs> but really, this is your argument? Like, look, we, we can all agree that drunk 17-year-olds do a lot of crazy shit. I mean, they eat food off the floor. Uh, they pee on cars. Hell, some of them draw penises on their friends' faces. But... <laughs> but... Let's not add attempted rape to the list of stuff drunk boys do. And I'm not saying, like, if you did something awful when you were 17, you should be excluded from society forever. But I also don't think we should just brush it aside because it happened when the dude was young. Like, this is for the Supreme Court, not your local softball team. He would go on to be one of the 10 most powerful people in the country. And yeah, I said 10, because it's the nine people on the Supreme Court and Beyonce. It's 10. <laughs> and look, all I'm saying is this. All I'm saying is, I think it's worth taking the time to try and find out the truth. 
Because if it turns out that this allegation is true, would you want a guy making decisions about all women's rights if he couldn't even respect one woman's right to choose? We'll be right back. So as as I was saying to you earlier, um, one of the things with Kavanaugh that's been really interesting is an argument that I've seen repeated for different people who've been accused of doing something generally... It's generally, uh, you know, sexual assault or harassment. And it was a senator defending Kavanaugh, who I think articulated it best. And I, I think we have the clip that they'll play. I just wanted you to watch this. Do you think that any of these claims are legitimate? No, I don't. I think, that, I think uh, this woman, or whoever she is, is mixed up. I know the judge very, very well. I know how honest he is. I know how straightforward he is. I know how he uh, stands up for what he believes and what's right. And uh, frankly, uh, if you were going to believe anybody, you'd believe him. Now, you see, what I find interesting about that is I don't believe that that senator is wrong, right? He goes, I believe he's an upstanding man. I believe that, uh, you know, he's lived an, uh, an outstanding life as I've known him. And what I've come to realize is, in society, we're seeing this over and over again, whether it's Bill Cosby, Les Moonves, Brett Kavanaugh, whoever it is. And I'm not saying Kavanaugh's guilty of anything. I'm just saying what we see is people struggle to understand that two things can be contradictory and true at the same time. You could know somebody as a great person, and they could also be doing something that you don't know about that makes them someone that you wouldn't recognize. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's, it's just one of those, those simple ideas. It's like with, with Bill Cosby, people were like, oh, I, he's a famous comedian. He's the guy who sells Jell-O. We didn't know that, like, he's a part-time rapist. Do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> like, no, no, no one knew that. And then there were people who said, but Cosby, that's not the Cosby I know. And it's like, yeah, it's not the Cosby you know. Unfortunately, it's the Cosby somebody else knows. Somebody his victim knows, you know? It's just like different ideas. There's things that we learn about all the time. Like, your parents, in life, you'll learn things about your parents that you never knew about them. You could have testified about things, and then, like, you, you turn 30, and you're like, I didn't know this about my parents. I didn't know this about my dad. I didn't know this about... Like, I, I was like that. I turned 30, and that's when I discovered that my parents were having sex. I mean, that was wild. <laughs> As a... Like... Like, it's just... You know what I mean? Like, you can find out things that shock you. Like, South Africa learned this lesson with Oscar Pistorius. I won't lie. We were genuinely shocked, and people did not know how to piece those two images together. Here was an inspirational man who didn't have legs, who motivated a nation, who did so much for charity and worked with young kids and everyone, and now people were saying, oh, but he murdered his girlfriend. And people were like, but th- that can't be true because he wasn't that. But there's a reason we call them skeletons in the closet is because they're skeletons in a closet. It's not skeletons on the porch. That's not what we say. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's something... That, like, I I don't understand. People don't understand it. Like, every single one of us has a side of us that nobody knows about. And it may not be sexual assault for everyone, but it's something, you know? It's like, people know you, and then there's, like, the you from your internet search history. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, there's that you. That's, like, completely different. And... And a good example is... is, It was uh, with Brett Kavanaugh specifically. The friend who was in the room, or the friend who um, Dr. Ford said was in the room, he hasn't been called to testify, which I find strange. And, <laughs> and they said, like, oh, he says he doesn't remember all of this, and Kavanaugh's not that kind of guy. But here's an interesting fact. His friend wrote a book a while ago about being a drunk in high school and just being like... And he writes about one of his best friends who he said would party hard and throw up all the time, and the character's name in the book is Bart O'Kavanaugh. 
which is not, I mean, that's not a great, that's not a great pseudonym at all, from Brett to Bart. It's, you gotta change the name completely. That's like, really, Bart? That would be like if someone wrote a book about OJ in high school and they're like, my friend, Apple Juice Simpson. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, we, we still know who you're talking about. So all I'm saying is this, I'm saying this like, just because you know somebody as being good, they may have been good to you. It doesn't mean that they were never bad to somebody else. You know, it's always that age old story. You watch the news, somebody was caught busted being a murderer. And what do the neighbors always say? They say, he, I can't believe it. He was so nice. <laughs> he was so nice. Every day we would meet when he would be taking out the trash and he was so nice. And they go, but ma'am, do you know what was in that trash? <laughs> It was, it was human body parts. It was like, well, it wasn't my body parts. <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, two things can be true at the same time. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guests tonight, my guests tonight are here to discuss the new book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Please welcome the author, Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter Eli Saslow, and the subject of the book, Derek Black. Welcome to the show. I'm gonna jump straight into it because this is honestly one of the most fascinating stories I've ever come across. I I remember an op-ed you wrote about it, but I'm gonna start with you, Eli. How do you decide to write the story? How do you even believe the story and where do you start in saying, here's a former white nationalist. When did you start learning about Derek? So I was writing about Dylan Roof, who'd committed the hate murder of nine people at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, a historically black church. And he'd spent a lot of time on this site called Stormfront. Uh, So I went on the site to try to learn about him, learn about this community. It's the largest hate site in the world. And uh, there were certainly threads on there saying really upsetting things about what Dylan Roof had done, celebrating him. But the biggest thread was about somebody named Derek Black, who was the son of the founder of this board, David Duke's godson, had been raised to sort of lead this ideology. Right and then had disavowed it and sort of disappeared. And so I wanted to find him, uh, and I did. So you're looking for a man by the name of Derek Black, who people are saying on the sites is the, basically the mastermind behind this ideology, someone who's inspired them. When you're reading through these threads and ideas, you say hates, but like, what are we specifically speaking about? Well, in Derek's case, we're talking about somebody who was on the radio every day. He had a radio show every day uh, talking about anti-immigration talking points, talking about um, spreading false information about IQ scores with different races and saying that white people were smarter. Um, We're talking about somebody in Derek's case who had already run for office in Florida, spreading this kind of information and been elected, um, had risen to a position of power, and then had written a letter later on to the Southern Poverty Law Center unwinding all of these talking points, all of the reasons he'd had the facts totally wrong, and trying to convince other people that these conclusions were disastrous for the future of the country. Now, Derek, I mean, on your side, you you have a really interesting story. You know, a lot of the time people will say nobody's born racist, but I feel like you are one of the few people who's (laughs) closest to this place because, (laughs) oh, because I mean, your, your, your mom was married to David Duke. You were born into a family of the Ku Klux Klan. So from the very beginning, you were taught to think a a certain way. How do you even begin the journey of starting to think differently? I didn't until I was at college. Um, I spent my, all the younger years getting more and more involved and feeling I really needed to help push this as my parents were getting older. And it wasn't until this weird experience of being outside of that in 
this different environment and seeing people who were not supposed to fit into my in-group, yeah. but who I really liked and we were hanging out and, uh, and also a college community that really condemned everything I was saying. And I wanted to know, first thing I want to know is why do you condemn it so strongly? Like, I think it's fine. It's not attacking anyone. Right? You, so you, you, you genuinely believe these ideas. Like, w just yeah. when you were alone in your room by yourself, you went like, I believe this. I believe that black people have lower IQs. I believe that people cannot mix. I believe, like, you, you this was like your truth. Yeah, there's whole sections of white nationalist organizations that spend their time putting out journal papers, uh, putting out articles, putting out things that seem very scientific, that make a lot of sense, misusing yeah. statistics and misusing facts, and making a case for all this just being the unfortunate truth that people don't want to believe. So you go to college, you meet kids who are not like you. Do you come in with your clan hood, or do you... Like, I, I genuinely... No, I genuinely want to know, like, how... Like, did you... Or did you disguise your identity as a person? Was that, was that how you started working in this world? I didn't disguise it. Um, since I was a... From the time that I was a little kid, I was very aware that it was controversial, and I just didn't bring it up in Gosh. anything that was not the white nationalist conference world. And as I got older, it became harder and harder to have two parts of my life. And before college, everybody who I was doing stuff with that was not white nationalist just sort of said, oh, you know, I don't like that a lot, but what am I going to do? Let's hang out. And it was college was the first time where I had this community that said, this is disgusting. We do not accept this at all. And I'm not going to just let this pass. So you, you have all of this information at hand. But when do you actually start changing? Because, I mean, like you say, you have people who've opposed you. You know that people oppose you. Mm -hmm. But, like, Eli, when, you, when you're following the story, like, what do you find as someone who's observing from the outside started to change somebody's mind on what they believed was right. I, I think one of the things for me about reporting this book was learning how hard it is to uh, affect that kind of change. I mean, from students on this campus, it took two years of sustained activism uh, and engagement with Derek in order to begin to even see some kinds of results of a change. And that right. was you know, civil resistance on campus, shutting down the school at one point to sort of say, these beliefs are not okay, you don't belong here. Uh, it was people reaching out to him, people who were the victims of his prejudices, who invited him over for dinner, sat with him again and again and again and again, even when they weren't seeing change, just hoping that maybe Derek would, would go beyond the stereotypes and start encountering the humanity beyond, beyond what he believed. And it took a long time. It sounds like a, like a process, and it also sounds like it's extremely unrealistic for it to be a process that works for everyone because you would need every single person who believes in these ideas to be engaging with people who are not like them, which is, which is really difficult. You went on to become someone who started writing about your experience. I remember I, f I first read your op-ed in the newspaper and it was, it, was, it was amazing how you spoke about what you believed in, how people changed you, and why you now believed differently. But when you go back and speak to the people who you preached hate to, they don't come with you. No, no. When I left, I left alone. And I spent a lot of years totally alone. Um, there were a couple of people who I could keep in contact with, but once I left that community, it wasn't even clear that I was going to be able to talk to my parents. Right. And there's not an anti-racist world that you just move to, so I spent a bunch of years <laughs> You've not arrived. knowing what I should do and not talking to anybody and going by my middle name right. and trying to believe that I never would have to speak about this again and that maybe in that way I could continue living a life. So now, not only are you not racist, your last name is Black, which <laughs> is like an added... It's like an added part of the story. The, um, the, the part of the book that really, really gripped me 
was when Eli's writing about your relationship with your father mm. and how he genuinely treats this like a death in the family where he sees you as the son he wishes he never had because you now go against everything that he truly does believe. How do you grapple with that? I mean, we, we struggle with this so much as human beings. I'm assuming you still love him because he's your father, mm -hmm. but you also speak out against the rampant hatred that he professes and taught you. I think in a kind of weird way, the stuff that I was raised with, that although all of society thinks we're nuts, this is truth and we have to say it, and that we've gotten there by being independent thinkers who are curious and look at facts even though everybody says it's wrong, like that stuff was also the things that I needed to be able to leave it. And I, I know he doesn't exactly see it that way, but I think in some ways he respects that I believe something strong enough that I have to talk about it. Right. Because that's the value that I was raised with, even if it didn't end up how he hoped. When you look at the conversation around white nationalism and Donald Trump, there is no mistaking the rise, as your book talks about, right. of this rhetoric. The Stormfront website that I believe you designed, correct? Part, you, parts of parts it. Parts yeah. of it you designed, I think, when you were like 10 years old, which is, which is insane. That website, after Trump was elected, experienced its highest traffic. Right. So we're starting to see that there is something in what Trump is saying that connects with this message that is completely white nationalist. I think that's totally true. I think the even scarier thing is the things that Trump are saying uh, that are pretty explicitly white nationalists also connect with a large portion of white voters in the country. I mean, we see studies all the time that 30 or 40 percent of whites believe they experience more prejudice. They're the victims of, of prejudice and discrimination more than people of color or Jews, which is right. factually wildly off base. But by playing to that sense of grievance, uh, white nationalists and people in power like the president, by saying things like, we don't want people here from shithole countries, or, uh, you know, we need to build a wall, and by retweeting stats about, you know, black on white crime, right, factually right, right. incorrect, uh, you know, it, it's effective. It gets people elected. Um, and I think that's the scary power of this ideology. It's historically embedded in a lot of what the United States has been. And unless we go through the act of confronting it, it's going to continue to grow and be a dangerous force in what the country is. Let me ask you this, um, Derek, before we go. As someone who grew up white nationalist, as someone who studied it, I guess, more than anybody, would, would you say you consider Donald Trump a white nationalist? He's not a white nationalist because a white nationalist is this little insular world where everybody believes a bunch of very specific things. But I was raised with a really firm belief that has always been true that America was founded as a white supremacist country that a lot of people's assumptions about race in America remain there and that that's untapped. And what he taps into is the same thing that white nationalists tap into when they're trying to recruit, when they're trying to convince somebody to go from some sort of garden variety, sort of racist belief right. to something that's ramped up, that's more extreme. That process looks exactly the same. So in, in a way, it's almost like there's a, like a latent or dormant idea that is embedded in America. It's something and if you, you just... have to work against. Right. Um, I think the big surprise uh, recently has been that it's a lot harder to be an anti-racist than it is to be a white nationalist because being an anti-racist means you're saying we have to change the status quo. Being a white nationalist is saying that things are fine as they are and you're good and 
don't give them an inch if they call you a racist. Right. And that's easier to tell somebody they don't have to do anything. It's a powerful story, and honestly, I, 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 I was fascinated by it because you, you share your experiences in a, in a really uh, transparent way. And there's only one question I had, and it sounds like a joke, and it sort of is, but are you not afraid that, like, you now know the non-truth? So what if, like, would you flip the other way? Does that make sense? Because you, you believe something was true for so long, and now you go, like, no, the, the opposite is true. Do you ever wonder if it's the other way around? Like, how do you, how do you, yeah. how do you contort your brain around that idea? Because I've never flipped on an idea like that extreme, if that makes sense. So how do you say to yourself, no, now I believe the correct thing? Yeah, yeah, no, it's legitimate. It is hard, and I think for those years where I was living in the wilderness, right, uh, metaphorically, like, what do I do? I spent a lot of time saying, like, what are my assumptions about the world? What, what do I think about things? What do I think about people? And how much of that comes from something that I never even really challenged? And figuring out how I make choices and what I speak about and what I do, uh, there, there's still a part of me that says, maybe I can't even trust things I feel convictions for. But I do think that I can say that if, I, if I'm driven by what doesn't hurt people, like what makes life better for people, um, then attacking a white supremacist system that is unfair, that is unjust, and being the person in the room who challenges the latent white nationalism is something that does that. It makes life better for people, including white people. Right. And that is a value that I don't think is, could be wrong. And that, and that was what was missing before. It was the fact that I considered the only people who were important, who I needed to advocate for, was, was this little group. And realizing that that's, that's wrong, that the little group has to expand, and that we're all a part of this. And if something hurts other people, then we have to figure out a way to change the system so that we are all included and that we can all work forward there. And you have to be the voice in the room doing that because it doesn't just happen. Uh, the status quo is not going to lead us there. The only thing that undermines a white nationalist who's trying to ramp somebody up to a more extreme version of racism is somebody in the room challenging those beliefs, keeping it from escalating and reminding them that what you're saying is wrong. Do you think white people would be more effective at that? Would, do, you, do, you, like, yeah. do you think there could, there could be more white people who are actively doing that as opposed to, as you said, turning a blind eye and saying, like, oh, I don't, I don't like that you believe that, but let's still hang out? It's, it's a white person in the room who has the strongest voice to counteract a racist thought. Uh, we were aware of that as white nationalists. We were explicitly aware that if you're talking to somebody and you're trying to get them to go from those Mexicans or maybe the south side of Chicago is a problem and get them to escalate into it's about race. We right. need to be going. The person who's going to ruin that for you is another white person who's saying, "Stop that," because it's equal. Like right, they, right, they right, have right. they have literal skin in the game, and what they say shuts any any sort of white nationalist racist thing you're saying down, and it it stops the room. And that's the thing that people can do. That's the thing that people at college did. It's the thing that anyone anywhere can do is speak up because being silent is a choice. Wow. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Eli. Rising Out of Hatred is available now. It's a fascinating story. I really recommend it. Eli Saslow, Derek Black, everybody. Thank you so much.
The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.